0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org.
1: When Abraham Joshua Heschel died in late December 1972, the world lost a major figure in contemporary Judaism, but it lost more than that, too. Heschel was one of the most popular and incisive mid-century religious figures in any religion, almost as popular among Christians as among his fellow Jews. He was a prominent supporter of the civil rights movement and a personal friend of martin luther king jr and his work influenced later public intellectuals from cornell west to walter Brueggemann. i'm michael farmer our guest today on christian humanist profiles is robert earl wine the isaac funk professor of philosophy at illinois wesleyan university his latest book is thunder in the soul an anthology of heschel's writings and part of plow books spiritual guides series that book is out now i'm delighted it's brought him to christian humanist profiles thanks for coming on the show bob Oh, thanks for having me. I think it'd probably be best to begin with a brief sketch of Abraham Joshua Heschel's life. It's it's really an extraordinary life. Uh, where, where did he come from and what led up to his remarkable career as a public intellectual?
0: Well, Abraham Joshua Heschel was born in 1907 in Warsaw, Poland. And he was born and raised in the world of Polish Hasidic Judaism. And he he had a really kind of illustrious lineage on both sides, right, of his family tree. There were many major rabbis and intellectual leaders. And um, as a young child at the age of three, which was the custom when he started uh, his formal education, um, he proved very quickly to be a child prodigy. And it seemed destined, right? It seemed like he was destined to be a Hasidic Rebbe. Um, but during his teenage years, he became increasingly interested in literature and writing Yiddish poetry. And so with the support of his mother, um, his father had died in an epidemic in 1916. He went to a gymnasium in Vilna for preparation for university. And in the fall of 1927, when he was 20, he went to Berlin. And at the time, Berlin was this major intellectual hub of science, literature, art, philosophy, but also uh, Yiddish culture and the academic study of Judaism. And so he submitted his doctoral dissertation in 1932. And uh, while he was working on it, you know, it it became a book, a monograph uh, in 1936, and at this time, um, or shortly thereafter, nineteen thirty-seven, he goes to Frankfurt, where he took over Martin Martin Buber had offered him uh, a teaching position at the judische Lehrhaus, which was an educational institute for Jewish adults. And um he was desperate to find a job outside of Germany. You know, this is a time of the the Nazis are in power and, uh, rising violence. And, um, he, re- he did receive a job offer from Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, but he was having a lot of trouble securing a visa. And before dawn, then on October 28th, uh, 1938, police agents kind of entered his apartment and deported him along with thousands of others to Poland and again in Poland he's struggling to get a visa he has this teaching opportunity but he can't get the visa and he's you know he has a lot of family so he's trying to get a visa for his mother and his sisters as well so this leads him to go to England um in July of 1939 hoping that he's going to have better luck securing the visa and shortly after he gets to England Germany invades Poland um and world war two kind of broke out and all of his relatives were murdered in the Holocaust.
1: My goodness. So he did.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So he did. I mean, the whole world, right. The whole world of his youth was basically obliterated. Um, He did secure a visa finally. And he arrived in Cincinnati in 1940 where he, uh, he lived in a dorm room while he taught and uh, he learned English and he wrote a lot. Um, and at by 1945, he he joined the faculty at the Jewish Theological Seminary, which was the real the the hub of conservative Judaism in New York. And a, a year later he married the classical pianist uh Sylvia Strauss. And he, you know, during this time he wrote a lot of his his major kind of theological works, The Earth is the Lord's, The Sabbath, Man's Quest for God, and Man Is Not Alone. Um, And increasingly, during the 1950s, he started playing the role of a kind of the public intellectual. He was invited to lecture at national forums, including the White House Conference on Children and Youth in January 1963. Oh, sorry. And then in January 1963, he delivered a keynote address uh, at the opening plenary session of the National Conference on Religion and Race. Um, and in this talk, he applied the insights from his works on the prophets to the civil rights movement. And it was there that he first met Martin Luther King Jr., who was also giving a plenary address. And they quickly became friends and collaborated on a number of things. So after the police assault on nonviolent black protesters in Selma in 1965, Heschel began participating in rallies and protests. Uh, he participated in the famous march from Selma to Montgomery, alongside King and other civil rights leaders. Um, and in addition to the civil rights movement, he was also involved behind the scenes um, with kind of with Vatican officials in drafting uh, Nostra Atate. And um, and he was also a leader in the kind of anti-Vietnam War movement, working with a number of prominent Christian thinkers and, you know, was was very influential in that. And then um, and then he he passed away in in 1972.
1: I think what strikes me about what he went through in his life versus what he writes about is is. I, I I don't want to use the word optimistic. I don't really like that word. I don't I don't think it I don't think it means uh, very much. But I his his writing is not dark. There's a there's a upward moving quality to it that I don't know that I would have expected from someone who lost, as you say, his whole world and most of his family to this to this uh, genocide of of Jewish people. Yes.
0: I mean, he often, you know, he often said despair is a sin, right? Despair is forbidden. We are not permitted to despair. And there are moments in some of his even his major books where you can see the Holocaust looming in the background just underneath the the written word. Or towards the end of his life, he writes a book on uh, kind of comparative study. On Kierkegaard and the Kutzke Rebbe, um, uh, this kind of Hasidic figure, and that—that that is a lot. Of, it's a very lacerated work, um, but yeah, he was always, you know, he was someone who was always kind of, um, or I guess he—he he would not give in to despair, right? He—he he felt like that was not a, a, a permitted option, and his he, there's not despair. You see anger, you see sadness. Uh, but but you don't see despair in his work. You don't, and there is also joy in his work. I mean, he was a very funny speaker. It's mm-hmm. um, right, yeah. So so I would agree with that.
1: As I read through the selections of his writing provided in Thunder and the Soul, and I should say I, I've read Man is Not Alone, and then I've read your your anthology of his work. So I'm, I'm by no means an expert on him. But I, when I was reading through these selections, I thought a lot about other mid-century public intellectuals, and especially people in the broad phenomenologist uh, tradition, uh, people like Maurice merleau ponty and Hans-Georg Gadamer. Was Heschel meaningfully influenced by the phenomenologist, or was that just part of the cost of doing business as a public intellectual in the 20th century?
0: Uh, I think you're right. You do see uh, Heschel did – Heschel was – meaningfully influenced by phenomenology. He deeply imbibed phenomenology during his time in Berlin. Um, And I mean, he continues throughout his career. He's engaging with people like Husserl and Heidegger, particularly Heidegger and not in a favorable way, but there's, but, but like Merleau-Ponty and like Gadamer, he was deeply influenced by Husserl and Heidegger Um, and you know there's there's a way that they 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 definitely share a kind of intellectual inheritance now i i do think you know i do think since phenomenology was kind of one of the dominant languages or the idioms of the time right the kind of intellectual idioms he did use it as a way to try to um as a as a language by which to express certain ideas but it and it, it it's conducive to his own kind of approach which is to emphasize lived experience, right, and the kind of the affective dimension of religious life. So I, I think it was, it was conducive to him. So, yes, so, yes, he is influenced.
1: The, uh, the anthology begins with a passage from Heschel's most famous and popular book, Man is Not Alone, in which he talks about faith as an expression to some degree of memory. What does it look like when a supposedly faithful person lacks memory for Heschel?
0: Well, so for Heschel, there's so much more to our present moment, right, than, than, than just what is here and now. Uh, in the present moment, there are dimensions of the past and the future, just as the known for Heschel is permeated with the unknown lurking just beneath the surface. So memory for Heschel, and I I realize this is a roundabout way, but I'm getting to your answer. Memory then for Heschel is a way of dwelling in the present, in light of the past. And not just one's own past, but the generations that have come before. Now, memory then means being rooted, being tied into one's ancestors, being tied into one's, you know, being tied into kind of wider expanses. than than one's own self. But it's also important to realize that that for Heschel, memory does not mean being slavishly beholden to the past, but rather it's a way that the past still lives creatively in the present, Um, that it it continues to, to, to live, to be dynamic. And Heschel was very critical of certain forms of Jewish orthodoxy, which he did see as beholden, to a tradition, right, and and that's kind of unwilling to adapt or change or unwilling to respond to the present moment, um, and and he sees that as no less of a problem than a kind of lack of any knowledge of the tradition as well or insufficient knowledge of the tradition, and so to have memory for Heschel means to be kind of creatively, dynamically living with the past in the present, and you know he has this really great quote that he says in the realm of spirit only he who is a pioneer is able to be an heir the wages of spiritual plagiarism is the loss of integrity i just i love that
1: passage, mm-hmm. and
0: i think it gets that this idea of this kind of dynamic and creative engagement with the past as that, as that's what he means by memory
1: I, I was interested in his treatment of memory because he seems to go beyond a lot of the conservative liberal divides that I think of when I hear a word like tradition. Um, right. So so on the one hand, he, he, he very clearly is uncomfortable with a Judaism that remains bound to tradition. But on the other hand, he had a, a very um, public quarrel with the Reconstructionist Rabbi Mordecai Kaplan, is that right?
0: Right. I mean, they were colleagues at the Jewish Theological Seminary, but they, they yeah, there was always a lot of kind of they, 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 disagreed significantly.
1: And I don't, I don't know Kaplan's work much better than I know Heschel's work, but I, I wonder if if part of their degree, their disagreement was that Kaplan was not memorious enough in Heschel's eyes, and maybe Heschel was too bound to the past in Kaplan's. Yeah, I,
0: I think, I mean, that would be, that would be a, a it's a very interesting question. Um, certainly, uh, certainly, I think with Heschel, there is a way, and, and this is part of the way that makes his kind of contemporary influence so interesting and and sometimes very strange because Heschel blocked right or sorry Heschel refused to you know his his work resists the kind of easy binaries between liberal and conservative right between tradition and and reform and um and when you know so when you look at the kind of the many of the major voices you know writing today uh many of them claim his, you know, to be his student and all of this, but they're often at, at opposite ends of the spectrum. Whereas Heschel had this very kind of traditional conservative, you know, theological foundation. He had a very progressivist politics. And we see his students have kind of often tend to move toward one extreme or the other. Whereas with Heschel, what I, what, you know, he, there was a way that, that he looked to the kind of radical sources of the, of the Jewish tradition. As a way of engaging what was beyond it,
1: right? Yeah, it, it, it's it is it's a weird combination, and it's 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 one you don't you certainly don't see that much in the Christian tradition. Although you see it some places where somebody is theologically conservative and um, politically radical. I mean, it, it, it happens. You see right. it, but it, it's it's uncommon. Right? Yeah. But I guess that means, on the one hand, there's something for everybody in Heschel, and on the other, uh, he, he can be kind of frustrating if you if you want him to be more doctrinaire than he is.
0: Right. I, I I would imagine that is true. I think that is true. I mean, he is he goes his own. You know, he he's a very kind of independent thinker. He does not toe any sort of party line, and that I, I has been a source of frustration for people.
1: Sure. Another thing I was struck by in his writing is his emphasis on wonder or reverence as a response to what Gabriel Marcel calls the mystery of being. What does it mean for us to respond to the world with a sense of wonder? And how do the various alternatives to wonder dehumanize the people who take them? Good.
0: So, yeah, that's a good question. So at the core, I think, of Heschel's theology, right, is this desire to cultivate a sense of awe and wonder. Right. And and to do this, he he emphasizes this kind of this level of immediacy, right, the level of immediate experience. And again, here we see the phenomenological. uh, I don't know if it was phenomenology that directed him to this. I don't suspect so. But I think phenomenology is a very conducive uh, methodology for engaging this sort of exercise. Right. And what he does is he he sees the level of immediacy. Uh, as the place where wonder and awe live, and so he's he's very critical uh, of of traditional philosophy of religion, you know, which which tries to prove God's existence or to move from what we know concretely to you know to bigger questions about God's existence or so on. And rather, what he tries to do is he tries to show us how the known, right, the world around us. Is so much more awe-inducing, amazing, and strange than we often kind of acknowledge. That we we grow numb to it uh, as we approach it through kind of our you know with with ideas of use and mastery and you know the everyday, and we lose sight of wonder. And so he tries so much of his works trying to recover that wonder. And for for Heschel, mystery and wonder are accessible to everyone, at least on this lived immediate level. The problem is it gets these these senses or these, these, I don't even want to call them senses, right? These these levels of awareness are jettisoned or they're, they're lost or dismissed as irrelevant as we move into kind of codification of ideas and arguments. And so to get to the latter part of your question about the kind of dehumanizing what, what happens as people lose sight of wonder, right? I think Heschel, so I, I think Heschel sees very much that his political stances are of a piece with his theology because he sees things like injustice or dealing falsely with people, um, with not really recognizing other people, at least those who we see as different than us as, as human beings, right? He sees this, this is a growing out of, it naturally grows out of the forfeiture of awe and wonder. That the, the emphasis on use value and the practical on profit um it it causes a kind of spiritual decay. And at the core at the core of Heschel's theology, in addition to this awe and wonder, is this idea that God is at stake in history, that God is at stake in the relationship between human beings. And so how one regards, how one treats other human beings is how one treats God, right? Or how one regards God. So the role of God, of spirituality for Heschel, it's not a comfort, right? Or as he memorably puts it, it's not an afterlife insurance policy, right? But rather God's demand it, it, it disturbs us. It shakes us up. It tells us that we're not living as we should. And so awe and wonder are tied to this kind of this decentering of ourselves, to the realization that something is asked of us, but that we're also just kind of dust and ashes. And the loss of this for Heschel is is tied up with egocentrism, self justification, and self just uh, self assertion which for Heschel are kind of are signs of spiritual decay. So I, I think he's, he's very concerned that certain attitudes beget policies and ways of being in the world that, you know, that, that open themselves up to, to violence and, and injustice.
1: Yeah, I, it, it strikes me that so many of the religion-adjacent public intellectuals of Heschel's era... Uh, see that loss of mystery and wonder as something endemic to the 20th century, um, and, and something that's being replaced by uh, kind of corporate capitalism on one side, and then scientific innovation and, and technologism on the on the other side. And it, I, I just. When I think back about that uh, to that era, I think of it as a time when people were very interested in the humanities because the GI Bill is filling English and philosophy mm-hmm. departments. Uh, but as as the decades wear on, the things Heschel, Gabriel Marcel, Jacques Maritain, uh, Unamuno, all all of these people are saying, seem so much more relevant to our era than to their own. It's like they saw where this whole thing was headed. Um, well, before the the man on the street could. Mm, interesting.
0: Well, I know Heschel was certainly very preoccupied with with like positivism, with logical positivism, where questions of meaning aren't even real questions. Right. They're nonsense. Right. And, um, you know, so but. You know, and that had such an influential kind of role in the public. But yeah, I, I mean, it's it certainly—you read some of his discussions, and it just—it feels like he's talking about our present moment.
1: Yeah, it, it's uh, it's it's really amazing how how evergreen the the passages you've selected for this uh, for this anthology are. It 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 does feel like he's speaking across the decades to the moment we find ourselves in, which I I, I guess he couldn't possibly have predicted the details of, but certainly he, he seems to have understood the spirit of his times well enough to speak to the spirit of ours.
0: Yeah, I, I, w- I would concur with that, yeah.
1: How does he balance his emphasis on wonder and mystery with his affirmation of particular doctrines of Judaism? Because as you've, as you've mentioned, he's, he's theologically conservative in a lot of ways, and it would seem to me that an affirmation of dogma and an emphasis on wonder and mystery would be in a, a sort of tension.
0: Right, so okay, good question so so um for Heschel, right the key the key thing more than dogma, I would say for Heschel, more than doctrine or it's not that doctrine and dogma are unimportant, although you well, I'll get back to that in a second. it's not that that's unimportant, right, but it's that they're in some ways they're less they're, they're more derivative or they, they, they come from a later stage than the kind of the uh, moments of insight or the inspiration or the, the lived reality. And for, for Heschel, what is essential is cultivating this capacity for awe, this openness to levels of meaning that are ineffable, that are incapable of being formulated uh, in language. And that if you don't actively work to nurture or cultivate it, he thinks it's going to wither and die. And for Heschel, this is precisely the importance of religious ritual. This is precisely the importance of halacha, right, the Jewish law, uh, the practice. That that for Heschel, he sees it as a way of cultivating the sense of awe and reverence, the sensitivity to, to the wonders that are all around us. Right, and and so it's it's what makes us sensitive, or what it would cultivates a sensitivity to God's presence, to, to you know, to kind of what's at stake in every moment. They, they, prayer, ritual observance, these are things that cultivate an attunement to mystery or to wonder. But again, this for Heschel, this requires a deep and living engagement with the tradition. So this means that you don't just you know, there's not just some sort of abstract dogma, you're engaging actively with the living voices of the tradition, right, that are discussing and disputing different points. Um, So Talmudic discourse, you know, getting involved in the different arguments between the rabbis over what a certain thing means, and so on. It's living, it's dynamic. It's not a just kind of fixed once and for all kind of statement
1: right right and so i i imagine that talmudic tradition helps him um helps him square that particular circle because you you can affirm a doctrine without being bound to that doctrine in a certain way or being being bound mm-hmm. to a particular interpretation of the doctrine
0: right right it's the the kind of the ongoing discussion about it
1: the ongoing yeah He also, um, it seems to me, takes issue with uh, Schleiermacher's famous definition of religion as a feeling of absolute dependence, and instead he concretizes faith as a response to a particular call to a particular God. Uh, What does he mean by that, and why is it so important for how we think of faith?
0: Uh, So I think Heschel actively resists this idea of spirituality as something internal to us as about kind of feelings, right? Whether from a Schleiermacher or the positivist that there's, you know, it's just that there's nothing correlating Um, and not that Schleiermacher says that, but the the positivist, but he instead Heschel is concretizing faith as a response, right? He sees faith. um, He talks about how deeds and rituals are essential to cultivating, the attitudes of the soul, right? That he doesn't want to see the, the, the soul, you know, he says the soul by itself is capricious. It needs to be shaped. It, it's like marble. It needs to be sculpted into something, right? And, um, and similarly, he doesn't want just uh, this idea of awe and wonder as, as feelings internal to one, but rather he sees them as responses to the living God, right? That it's genuinely, it's part of a dialogical uh, encounter, and so faith, um, you know, for, for Heschel, faith needs to be rooted in a concrete tradition. It needs to be rooted in a sense of history. It needs to be rooted, um, and it, it needs to be actualized in the forms of deeds and practices. Uh,
1: and th- that that ties into something I see in a lot of the passages in this book, which is a a kind of general distrust of abstract categories uh, in favor of his understanding that Judaism in particular is a concrete religion based in history. This is another concern he shares with a lot of the phenomenologists, but what's the danger of abstract thinking as Heschel sees it?
0: So... I think in terms of thinking about religion, right, in uh, in particular, the abstraction worries Heschel um, precisely because the sorts of attitudes it cultivates, right? So, for example, Heschel is, is very unhappy at the kind of the dominant philosophical approaches to God in the Western philosophical tradition, right? These notions of God's proofs. Or sorry, proofs of God's existence, right? And that you either accept or refute the legitimacy of these proofs. And Heschel isn't really interested in the proofs of God's existence. He doesn't think they're convincing. But more importantly, he thinks they, they, they cultivate a fundamentally erroneous and deeply problematic way of thinking about God. That he also sees a play in other problems in modernity and, and and so on. That that he sees it as of a piece with the modern mindset, which demands a certain sort of verification uh, that the subject or the self grants as to whether something's real or not, right? And and he says this this approach then makes God's existence a question, which it's then up to the self to believe in or not. And, and, and this is this kind of this mentality that it's up to us. It's up to our minds to judge what counts as real or not. The subject is supreme, right? The world exists laid out before the self. And the mind then determines what is the case and what is not. Reason is the ultimate arbiter. This for Heschel is, is not conducive to genuine religiosity. He wants a different approach because for Heschel, you know, he he frequently uses this language of the the pious person. For the pious person, God is the real subject, and the human or themselves, the self is but an object to God, right? And it's it's this idea of like decentering the self, and that that God is not some sort of abstract inf- point of information to be known or or judged, but rather a, a living encounter that is that that kind of be, that de the self, right? So in many ways he's reversing the direction of the proofs of God's existence, uh, you know, not to, to begin with what we know and then move on to grasp, you know, what the unknown, but rather to, to realize that mystery, um, this, this mystery that permeates everything that's available to us in the world of senses, that decenters the self, um, and and so this in in many ways is what he's trying this kind of this faith that's sensitive to the stakes of what's going on around it right of the the miraculous nature of the moments in which we live of the, of every moment of the fact that there is a world at all that we're dwelling in, and you know that that's so it's a kind of he's he's trying to break what he sees as this this Orientation around the subject and the knowing subject, right? To a, a, a faith that is uh, more decentered, that that is rooted um, in a kind of feeling of encounter.
1: Right, right. So that it's, it's neither, so that it's neither abstract and, and, and kind of logicalized, nor is it merely subjective. It's it's right. It, yeah, it's it's about your encounter with this particular God who has worked in the world in these particular times and places and is continuing to work in the world.
0: Right. Right.
1: Uh, the Bible was obviously very important to his thought, but the prophets were particularly important to him, and he wrote a book just on the... the pro- uh, Is that his uh, doctoral dissertation that got published, uh, The Prophets?
0: Right. Well, so, so his dissertation... Um, uh das Prophetische Bewusstsein or the prophetic consciousness, right? It gets published as Die Prophetie in nineteen thirty six, which is just a slim book. It's a very um it's a fascinating book, but it's a you know it's it's very it's a slim book which when it gets translated into English as the Prophets in the sixties, it's vast he vastly expands it.
1: Okay. So and, so the uh, the book we know as yeah. the Prophets is not just his doctoral dissertation.
0: Right, right. No, it's taking it's it's taking some of the key insights, but it's it's adding and and expanding them quite a bit.
1: What role did he see the prophets as playing in the historic lives of the Hebrews and in the modern world? So to to go back, um, well, okay. So so for Heschel,
0: the prophets. So his work on the prophets are a, it's a kind of a strange mix because on the one hand. There, his his work is it's rooted in comparative religion and solid philological scholarship, but on the other hand, he sees a kind of existential urgency to it, and it's right and it opens up all of these sort of theological dimensions. So, what Heschel? Uh, so there there are a couple of things. So ostensibly, in working on the prophets, right? He's challenging a particular you know he's he's challenging regnant views of the Israelite prophets and biblical criticism, right? Where they're either reduced to some sort of broader international phenomenon that they're, you know, equivalent to oracles or diviners in other cultures or viewing prophecy as a kind of pathological uh, term, like a result of mental illness, right? And these were dominant ways of rendering the prophets dispensable in Protestant scholarship, particularly German Protestant scholarship at the time. And um, so he he's, he's rejecting this, and he's trying to. When he looks at the prophets, right? When he looks at the prophets, he's he's trying to clear away the obstacles that prevent us from from seeing what they're up to, and what you know how they get subjected to all these distortions, and that involves then. Uh, a major critique of the philosophical notion of God, right? Uh, You know, Aristotle's unmoved mover, or the emphasis on omniscience, omnipotence, and so on. And instead, he insists upon God's pathos, right? God's vulnerability, that God is emotionally, that, that God is vulnerable to what happens in the world, right? This is not the distant God of ethical monotheism, but a God emotionally involved in history, a God that's vulnerable. Because it's emotionally invested. And so for Heschel, the prophets feel God's feelings, right? There's this, they, they, they are attuned to God's pathos and the fact that, that God is at stake in humanity. And so the prophets are not prudent, right? They are not willing to keep religiosity just a kind of nice thing about fine feelings. But that social concerns, right, injustice, these these are precisely theological concerns and so you know as he's translating you know as he's working on translating this into the you know the english speaking world in the the 60s the late 50s and 60s he's you know this is this moment with the you know the civil rights movement is raging all around and the vietnam war and you know these these are he thinks these These are precisely the sort of things that the prophets would not remain silent about.
1: Sure. Yeah. So so is it is it right to say that he sees somebody like Martin Luther King as a as a prophet in that Hebraic tradition?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. No. Frequently, when referring to King, he would talk about him as a contemporary prophet.
1: I I want to get back to that, that divine pathos because as you as you mentioned he he connects prophecy with empathy and that suggests that the prophet feels things especially god's feelings more deeply than other people do that's also something emerson and wordsworth among others say about poets uh does Heschel see a connection between the prophet and the artist yes and no
0: so Heschel does write a lot about poetry and the arts and, you know, the poetic, the prophetic writings are, are quite beautiful. And and Heschel himself was a poet. But when he's talking about the prophets and then perhaps it's because of the environment in which he, you know, he, he developed this or perhaps, you know, but but he's particularly he's he Heschel seems particularly worried. That when scripture is treated as literature, right, or as mere, as, as poetry or, or equated with it, that God, this results to turning God into an abstract idea rather than a living presence. And so he's so keen to insist upon the uniqueness of the prophets, that they're a phenomenon sui uh, generis, right? That they're, they're, that there are points of comparison and overlap, but he's all, he's very keen to keep reiterating what makes them distinct. So I think he he does not engage that as much as, um, yeah. So I, I think he's reluctant to engage that sort of um, comparison.
1: And that that makes sense to me. Um, it, it that's a comparison that a lot of people, particularly in the early 19th century, uh, take a bit too far. Yeah. And, and and I think they can do it only because they don't really think they don't really think that specifically religious traditions are all that important. And so art comes in and fills in that right. gap. And Heschel, I would, I would have right. been shocked if he if he had allowed that to happen. Well, in some ways, uh, we've mentioned this a couple times, but uh, he, he's best remembered for his work with the civil rights movement. And in her forward to Thunder in the Soul, Heschel's daughter Susanna quotes her father saying, quote, if there is any hope for the future of Judaism in America, it lies with the black church. What did he mean by that?
0: So I think, you know, so... So Heschel is, is a rather unique figure in the American landscape. He not only had, you know, close relationships with all the different branches in, uh, of Judaism, right? But he was also, he enjoyed a number of close friendships with a number of the most prominent Christians of his day. And when Heschel looked at the black community, or the black church, right, he saw a lot of commonalities between the black church and the pietist spirituality of the Polish a citizen of his youth right this kind of this level of spontaneity and this level of affective engagement this deep engagement with the tradition but uh, but also innovation right and and this gets at I think a kind of larger issue with with Heschel's discussions of you know on questions of pluralism or other religions that he thinks that you know religious parochialism is no longer a live option, that we're all bound up with one another. And he gave this very famous talk uh, called No Religion is an Island, that, that yes, we need to be rooted, you know, one needs to be deeply rooted in one's tradition if one's engaging in interfaith dialogue, but this doesn't mean that one rejects or ignores those who belong to other traditions. And in fact, he sees it as imperative that different, you know, that this kind of religion's help one another. And I think he's very concerned about American Judaism. He's very concerned that Jews are becoming white, you know, in America, this kind of whiteness, this kind of Mm -hmm. comfortable middle class, you know, upper middle class existence, and that the religiosity is becoming stale. It's becoming commercialized. And he he's very worried about that. And he sees much more vitality in the black church than what he often sees in, you know, the kind of Many of the the institutional kind of bastions of of Judaism in America. It's
1: it's interesting because that happens to Dietrich Bonhoeffer too when he comes when he comes over to study Mm. at Union uh, he he is really terribly fascinated and drawn to uh, the the black churches in Harlem Um, and and now his tradition is. Closer to African American Christianity, I, I would say than Heschel's is, but it, it's interesting that 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 group of churches influenced so many, um, yeah, so so many people outside of the the immediate tradition.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah.
1: His audience has always had in a, a sizable portion of Christians, but at no point do I get the impression that he expected or even wanted them to convert to Judaism. From my understanding, modern Judaism isn't really a religion of conversion that much anyway. Uh, how would he want our Christian listeners to approach his work?
0: Well, so yeah, so Heschel absolutely had no desire to convert Christians in the sense that they would become Jews, right? that That he's not... But he, he was adamantly opposed to Christian efforts to make Jews Christians, right? And this was part of the basis of his involvement with Vatican II. Um, and rather, what what he sought, he so he he adamantly resisted efforts at conversion. But he was also adamantly opposed to efforts of, you know, that the Jews would have no contact, right, a kind of separatist, that there was no, theolo- there wouldn't be theological co- uh, conversation or engagement with Christians um, that, you know, you see in certain Orthodox figures of the time. Rather, Heschel looked and he saw Jews and Christians that, that yes, they have, tr- there are tremendous differences, but they have a lot in common. And for Heschel, what's so essential more important than the differences is a shared conviction in this idea of God's pathos, right? That God cares about the world, that God is involved in the world, that God's at stake in the world. And of course then, for Heschel, they're going to be deep and substantive disagreements. Um, and these disagreements are important and they should be respected. But, I mean, the last thing Heschel wants is for interfaith to lead to a kind of loss of religious difference, right? That there's some kind of homogeneity that gets supported, that's this kind of watered-down version of, you know, he, he's very opposed to that. But but rather that he thinks there's beneath these, you know, very important distinctions, there's this shared level of a lived reality, right, beneath the codifications and the abstractions, what he often calls depth theology, right, that there's this level of depth and personality and on this level, there can be really profound interactions between people of different faith communities. But what's required then is a, a, a sort of humility, right? That, that no religion has a monopoly on holiness. And so, for Heschel, he thinks now more than ever, you know, these with the rise of commercialism, secularism, all of the, you know these things that he's so he's he's so frightened about what what will happen to religiosity. He thinks that these traditions are much better off cooperating in the sense of sharing resources and engaging that rather than sort of proclaiming that they alone are right and that others are wrong. So I think he was very interested, you know, I mean, he actively read Christian theology, he had very close friendships. With uh, you know he was he was very close friends with Reinhold Niebuhr um, and a number of other really major theologians and you know he was he he, he valued their thought their ways of approaching issues um, and so I I think for 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 Heschel it's it's a way of maintaining difference while also engaging and I think that's what he sought with you know with Christians. Is is a way of of talking to them, where he didn't, you know, where where they could there could be a meeting or or a genuine meeting or genuine points of contact, without one trying to make the other, uh, you know. Uh, I guess without dissolving that
1: difference, right? Well, and and that that meeting goes beyond just the ethical. So it's it's one thing to say, well, Jews and right. Christians can work together to end segregation because this is a it's a theological issue, but it's an ethical issue, right. I think, more primarily. But he right. he wants us to meet in the theological realm as well, which is fascinating. Yeah,
0: yeah, it is. It is.
1: He writes that the tragedy of the modern world, quote, begins with the segregation of God, with the bifurcation of the secular and the sacred. Uh, Where does that segregation come from?
0: So I think this idea of the the segregation, I think he sees it. um, When we start talking about religion, in terms of feelings, right? In terms of what one does in a church or a synagogue. Um, When we stop, when we distinguish the religious from the social. Uh, So, so, uh, you know, this is where that segregation creeps in. So I'm thinking, so for example, in his, the very, the, the talk he gave that religion and race talk that I had mentioned earlier, he, in this, he quotes a minister who had criticized Martin Luther King, right? And he said that Martin Luther King was causing social disruption when he should have been focusing on the spiritual edification of his congregation, right? Rather than worrying about temporal matters that are best left to the courts or whatever, you know, um, King should have just been sitting, you know, and, and you know, offering a kind of spiritual refinement to, to his flock. And Heschel says, Heschel finds such a position shocking, right? And he insists that this minister who's making this criticism of Martin Luther King, Jr. uh, He says that this guy, this minister clearly does not understand the biblical prophet. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Because the biblical prophet absolutely rejects such a distinction. And so for for Heschel, you know, again and again, he's saying that these moral and political concerns are spiritual concerns, right? We can't just treat them as policy problems. Right. That we can't just leave them um, to, you know, to that we have to treat them in terms of the the whole person. Right. And he looks at, you know, contemporary his the, the, the America of his moment. And he thinks, you know, that this this country is in the state of a kind of spiritual emergency. But he also says that he also thinks it's this tremendous spiritual opportunity. Right. And he you know, when he talks about Pharaoh, you know, and he talks about Exodus a lot of times, he says, you know, Exodus was not only, uh, you know, Exodus was a tremendous lost opportunity in addition to being this miraculous narrative, because the Egyptians could have left the Pharaoh with the, the Israelites. And that did not happen. And similarly, you know, the United States, this is a moment when it could radically reorient how it's approaching its kind of social order. Um, and he really hoped that opportunity would be heated in the civil rights movement and, you know, it, that it would, it would be beyond that. It wasn't just, you know, that that it would have tremendous spiritual ramifications and, and reshape the society as a whole.
1: I suspect a lot of Americans when they, when they hear him complaining about the bifurcation of the secular and the sacred might get a little nervous because it might be sounding like he's recommending some sort of non secular state. Do you know if he was interested in that at all? I don't think. No,
0: no, he he was not. I mean, I think. But it's it's interesting that you say that because, you know, when uh, the, among there are those who were his who claimed to be his disciples and his, you know, uh, and and they very much are you know in you know are uh, moving in that direction but i don't he's he's not what he i think he i mean I think he thought that religion religious organizations and institutions should be profoundly bound up in political discussions and that sort of thing but i don't but um I don't see anything like a, a sort of theocracy he's he's not aiming for that at all and he's not really you know it, it's uh it's about i think for him the the kind of Religion is a, is a source for bringing people into to engaging and recognizing these kind of social issues.
1: Well, I've been steering the conversation so far, but here on Christian Humanist Profiles in the Spirit of Hospitality, we like to give our guests the last word. What haven't we talked about today that you'd like our listeners to know?
0: Well, what, what consistently amazes me about Heschel is, and, and we've talked a little bit about this, but it's about how prescient he continues to be. And, you know, our, this current moment we're living in, there's this, this unprecedented awareness and acknowledgement of white privilege and structural inequality. And, you know, so it's this kind of remarkable moment. And I think Heschel provides a good guide on how to be an ally, right? Or how, more than that, how to look, how to reach within the Jewish tradition in order to reach outside of it that is he he talks about engaging you know issues uh, pertaining to justice to society to diversity you know to religious diversity all these sorts of things but he doesn't do it in a way of watering down or trying to find minimal commitments or you know it it's rather it's through the faith tradition that he he finds a way to reach others who are outside of it and um it's it's a remarkable approach, and I think on a whole range of issues, he's he's precisely the the, the kind of thinker that we, that we need right now.
1: Yeah, I, I I'll second that. I I um, if if our listeners have not read Heschel, you you owe it to yourself to do so. He's he's very bracing, but it's a very soft kind of brace. Like he he's yeah. he's gentle, but he pushes you. It's 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 really really remarkable um the way he the way he writes so uh thunder in the soul uh this this new collection is a is a good place to start where would you say people should go after that man is not alone is kind of the the classic would you would you agree
0: Uh yeah i mean man is not alone uh people often you know the sabbath is a is a great one um In terms of you know his thinking about Judaism, it's you know God in search of man. He wrote a lot. The (laughs) pro or the prophets. Just read it all. No, I could start naming. I I can't recommend one at the expense. You know, there. I guess it would depend on what you're interested in. His his man's quest for God has amazing uh, discussions of prayer, um, and and the purpose of prayer uh yeah I, I would be hard-pressed to recommend just one book so why don't you choose just get this anthology is not alone <laughs> yeah well you can't go wrong with man is not alone you can't go wrong with the sabbath you can't go wrong with god in search of man like the yeah so but but pretty much um any of his any of his works other than his very kind of technical more technical scholarly writings are are very accessible um and you know, and they, they really kind of they they're, they're very they they make themselves open to the reader, and they don't presuppose a, a great deal of knowledge of the tradition.
1: Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and and talking to our listeners about Heschel and his his legacy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. This is a, this is a real pleasure. Thank you.
1: We've been talking to Robert Irwin about his new collection of Abraham Joshua Heschel's writings, Thunder in the Soul. That collection is out now from Plow Books. You can find a link to buy it on the show notes for this episode at ChristianHumanist.org, where you can also listen to the many other shows on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. This is Michael Farmer. Thanks for listening.